From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. The news out of New York continues to trend positively. Hospitalizations from COVID-19 are down, but Governor Cuomo says he won't trade any lives for reopening his state's businesses. We'll ask our infectious disease specialist on AirTalk this morning whether it's possible to reopen businesses without risking any lives. We'll also talk about increasing numbers of strokes being seen in patients who've recovered from COVID-19. And KPECC education reporter Kyle Stokes details the hurdles LAUSD and other districts face in reopening campuses for the start of the next school year. It's AirTalk after NPR News. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us as we have been doing every day since the beginning of the pandemic's effect being felt on California. We bring you a noted infectious disease specialist. Some days it's an epidemiologist to talk about efforts to track COVID-19. But we're uh, delighted to have back with us today from UC Davis Children's Hospital, professor of medicine and the chief of pediatric infectious diseases at Davis, Dr. Dean Blumberg. Dr. Blumberg, thank you so much for being with us, particularly for such an important day in the future of KPCC. Yeah, well, thank you, Larry, for getting the important information out there about this infection. Let's talk about where we sit right now. Governor Newsom yesterday talking about uh, the first phase of reopening um, well on its way toward being accomplished. So a few business sectors are going to be allowed to open starting Friday for curbside delivery. Not clear that's going to happen here in Los Angeles County, as uh, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti has been more cautious. But your thoughts about doing this staged reopening? Well, it makes sense to make sure that it is staged because what we're really concerned about is a, is a relapse um, and that if we have more mobility, that we're going to have more infections. Because remember, the rate of um, infections that has been occurring um, is relatively low because we've been so successful with social distancing in California. So this has been great, but it means that a large proportion of the population is still susceptible to infection. So this still could result in a very large outbreak that could overwhelm healthcare systems. As we do every day, we're available for our medical expert to answer your questions at 866-893-KPC. You can tweet your question at AirTalk, post on the AirTalk Facebook page. You can also uh, post on the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. Dr. Blumberg, I wanted to ask you about a report out of the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. And in fact, uh, the lead researcher on the report, uh, Southern Californian, she's a graduate of Cal State Long Beach and got her PhD in chemistry at Caltech, Bette Korber. the study identifying a newer strain of uh, the coronavirus, which, um, according to the study authors, is what's dominant on the East Coast of the United States, and that might account for the differential in, in infectiousness that we are seeing between the two coasts. The, the study doesn't 
posit that there is a difference in the degree of illness, but that uh, this particular strain of COVID-19 appears to be more communicable. Your thoughts on this, which, by the way, has not yet been peer-reviewed. Right. It's an interesting study, and it looks at the uh, spike protein. And so we're all familiar with the spike protein from the um, diagrams of the virus. It's those spikes that um, emanate from around the virus that gives it its name, the coronavirus, that makes it look like a crown. And the spike is really important because that's the attachment factor that attaches to the respiratory cells of the respiratory tract. And so there's two parts of that. One part um, actually attaches, and the second part facilitates fusion and entry into the cell by the virus. So this is a, a prime target for vaccines, and any mutation in that would make it much more difficult to, um, to manufacture a vaccine that's going to be um, consistently effective over time. So that's what we have to deal with with the seasonal flu every year, isn't it? Yeah, the mutations in the seasonal flu, that means we have to have a new vaccine um, every year. And so what we're, we were hoping is that we can find a consistent part of the spike protein to include in the vaccine. If we get a really good immune response to that, even with small changes in the spike protein, we would hope that the vaccine would work over the long term. But we won't know that until we study it. So would you expect a study like this would be taken Uh, quite seriously by the different research groups that are working on a vaccine? Absolutely. So, for example, when you're making a vaccine, there's different parts of the spike protein that you might want to take a really close look at. And the parts that are mutating the most, you wouldn't want to include those in the vaccine as much as the stable parts of the spike protein. Um, And so people, you mentioned influenza, and people are looking at that, too, that if there are parts of the influenza virus that don't change as much over time, and you made a vaccine that included those parts, then you could have a universal flu vaccine that means that maybe we don't have to get vaccinated every year. So these are all sort of research possibilities. Also wanted to ask you about um, another uh, story that I've noticed that uh, among some patients who appeared to have fully recovered from COVID-19, there have been strokes that have followed, and this has been particularly noticeable in younger patients. Uh, And um, I'm just curious about what the thought is as to why they would be more susceptible to these clots. Yeah, it's it's interesting and it's sad too, especially when when they think they're out of the woods and in the recovery phase. So the any any viral infection can result in what's called a vasculitis, an inflammation of the blood vessels. And once this um, occurs, once the blood vessels become inflamed, then this makes them more prone to um, clotting and for and and the occurrence of strokes. And so what we're seeing is that previously healthy, relatively young patients, young adults. Um, who are in the recovery phase do have evidence of these strokes. Um, They're generally in the large vessels, and so these can affect um, the lungs and other areas of the body, the kidneys and other areas, and they can result in um, disability and death. Again, we're at 866-893-KPECC. Ray in Atwater Village asks, when we see numbers of confirmed cases reported for a state or a county, Is that just the number of people who've tested positive or the number of people who've been hospitalized or received treatment for COVID-19 symptoms? 
Well, in the U.S. and in the, the counties in California, they're all reporting confirmed cases, meaning laboratory confirmed. So they'd have to have the swab and be confirmed, but they don't have to be hospitalized. So it can be inpatients as well as outpatients. All right. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, Christian in Pasadena has a perfect question for you as a pediatric infectious disease specialist. What are the best ways to educate children about health and hygiene during the pandemic? Yeah, so hand washing, of course, is something that we've been talking about a lot. And children as young as two or three can be taught um, hand washing. Um, the respiratory etiquette also can be done as early as that age in terms of coughing into the elbow or into a sleeve rather than into your hand and covering your cough. So those are all things that can get children involved and on a, a positive track um, with this um, pandemic. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. And we have listeners who are already posting their thanks to you, Dr. Blumberg, and I extend that to all the the other uh, physicians and public health experts who've been joining us for two months now on a daily basis um, with such important work to do in their own practices, at their own hospitals, with their own public health agencies. And uh, our thanks to you, Dr. Blumberg, and, and all the others in this field who are so generously providing their time for educational purposes. Well, thank you. You know, it's really a privilege to be in this position for when something like this happens, that I've had the training and experience. So I really am happy to try to assist in any way that I can. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Melissa writes on the Facebook page, we seem to be getting updates on businesses, but what about personal relationships? Our daughter's boyfriend is back home from Northern California from college. They haven't seen each other in two months. Is it okay for her to visit him and his family? If so, should we quarantine her when she comes back to our house? Yeah, right now we're not recommending that, but we are awaiting further word from the governor, and we do anticipate that there will be a loosening up of the social distancing restrictions so that people will be able to visit with their loved ones, whether they're in the family or um, whether they're boyfriends or girlfriends. All right, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Sarah um, in on Melrose says, we're having problems with a roommate about how to isolate. She wants to have her boyfriend over. Uh, what does Dr. Blumberg think uh, represents a safe bubble? Are we wrong to feel that we don't want to cohabitate with someone who's bringing her boyfriend in? So the current recommendations are to isolate in place, meaning households should be relatively isolated. So families or other um, apartment mates, they should stay in the same place and not mingle with others from outside their household. All right. And uh, Scott tweets at AirTalk, I shop at the Ralph's on Sunset. Given a recent large outbreak among employees, should I go to a different Ralph's? Or is maybe uh, this Ralph safer with increased diligence in cleaning? I do want to mention, Scott, just, just what I'd seen um, in local news reports is that that Ralph's was doing a thorough uh, cleaning. Um, and I believe they're installing barriers and all kinds of things because obviously this is a huge hit. The last I saw, they had 21 confirmed COVID-19 cases at that Ralph's in Hollywood on Sunset, uh, just close to my, my high school. I went. I used to go to that Ralph's all the time. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, you want to uh, weigh in on that? 
Yeah, so you can get these sort of these localized outbreaks, and really the main thing to prevent these outbreaks is the social distancing. The vast majority of the transmission can be stopped by the social distancing. The other efforts, even such things as wearing masks, um, don't work as much as the social distancing and the cleaning in terms of um, disinfection and cleaning, and even even that doesn't doesn't make have have as much of an effect as social distancing. So social distancing is really the mainstay of preventing infection. So go to that, Ralph's, if that's the one that you prefer, if that's convenient for you. Um, but really make an effort to distance yourself from other shoppers and other and employees. And I know that in some situations that can be very difficult. All right. We'll continue with Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis uh, Medical Center, the Children's Hospital there, where he's professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases. We have more solid questions coming from our listeners, and we're going to pass those on to Dr. Blumberg on what is a very important day for KPCC in attempting to continue this service for listeners. I'll tell you about that in just a moment here, but the stakes are very, very high for us, as they are for so many people throughout the United States today. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Just a reminder, coming up at noon, we'll have the daily news conference from Governor Gavin Newsom. From Sacramento, not far from where our guest, Dr. Dean Blumberg, joins us at the UC Davis Children's Hospital. He's professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases. Frank in Pasadena wants a little more detail on the strokes for those who'd seemingly recovered uh, and then suffered a stroke uh, after uh, dealing with COVID-19. Frank wants to know, Dr. Blumberg, if those patients had prior conditions, obesity or or a smoker, um, wondering if that factored into it. Yeah, the the interesting parts are that we we do know that patients have had strokes who do have um, uh, comorbid conditions such as obesity or hypertension or heart disease. But the reports that we're seeing are also in patients that were previously healthy and weren't old. And I'm just looking at one report right now, patients between 33 and 49 years of age, so not in a high-risk group. And two of them had had no um, no risk factors. And these are large vessels that are um, getting clotted off, such as the carotid artery or a cerebral artery. Um, and so this can, of course, result in, in brain damage. And so these can be quite severe. We have back-to-back uh, questions from Lakewood. Norma in Lakewood says, if the virus is mutating and vaccines must be changed as well, might this make us more prepared against a future pandemic of a new coronavirus? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, and not only against a new coronavirus, but against other emerging infections. And so um, the Oxford team, for example, has been thinking about this for years and created a platform for a vaccine for the next time a pandemic occurred. And so um, they're taking advantage of this um, pandemic by rolling it out, um, the coronavirus vaccine, on their platform that they feel that they can ramp up very quickly. 
um, and respond very quickly to emerging infections. JP writes on the page first for Larry and Dr. Blumberg. Thank you for your service. We all appreciate it. Thank you, JP. Uh, And then uh, he asks, with new COVID testing sites opening on a daily basis, please remind us why we should get tested even if we aren't feeling ill in any way. So that the, the testing information um, helps public health authorities know how many people have been infected, what proportion of the population has been infected, and how far we are on the road to gaining herd immunity. We're probably going to need about 80%, maybe even 90% of the population immune one way or, the, or another before we can go back to our previous way of life. So that's either we need a lot of people getting infected, which of course will be a disaster in terms of um, health outcomes, um, or being immune because of um, being immunized. And that's how that information really helps public health authorities. And we know that there's a wide disparity of um, infections throughout the country and throughout the state, um, with urban areas having higher proportions of people infected just because of the population density and um, opportunities for um, interaction and infection infection compared to um, rural areas. Bill in the San Gabriel Valley says uh, there was a French rep- uh, report of a COVID-19 patient from back in December. Could this mean that Wuhan may not have been the source of the virus? Well, the vast majority of the early cases were reported in the Wuhan area, so we do believe that that's where this emerged. And then via travel, that we did have early infections in other areas. So the the, the, the vast majority of the, the evidence points to Wuhan. David, uh, on the AirTalk Facebook page, what has Dr. Blumberg seen in the pediatric population as complications related to COVID-19? My kids feel invulnerable, as kids do, but I've read about uh, Kawasaki-like disease symptoms showing up in New York in pediatric populations. Yeah, absolutely. What we've seen is a wide variety of complications that have occurred that we see with virtually any viral infection in pediatrics. So Kawasaki's disease, which is a systemic inflammation that may result in um, heart complications. Um, We've also seen um, inflammation of the brain, encephalitis, um, and um, uh, pneumonia, uh, a variety of rashes that have occurred in kids, too. So although children are less severely affected compared to adults, a certain proportion of them will have complications. And in fact, a recent report found that 25% of hospitalized patients were um, were not in a risk group. So they're relatively young and without um, comorbid conditions. All right. Uh, let's, let's talk a bit about... Um, the comments that were made by Governor uh, Cuomo in, in New York, and I, I, I don't mean to pick on him with this because he has tremendous responsibility and uh, has actually uh, done, I think, by pretty much everyone's account, strong job of leadership there. But he said something that gave me pause this morning. I was listening to his news conference, Dr. Blumberg, and he, he talked about let's be honest and open, have a real conversation about the deaths that will occur with reopening businesses. And then he went on to say, our reopening in New York State doesn't have a trade-off. Um, a single life has value, and and we're not going to trade lives to reopen, which to me, maybe I just misunderstood the point that he was making, but I don't understand how you could reopen without having 
a greater risk of people contracting COVID-19 and dying. It seems to me you're you're you you are forced into weighing um, the loss of life potential um, against the necessity to eventually reopen the economy. So, can you speak to that issue? I mean, is it possible to reopen without there being lives sacrificed? I think it's not possible to do that until you achieve a level of um, uh, immunity within the population that would minimize risk of infection. And the only way to do that is either to have everybody to let the let it let it run its course so that you do have more illness and people will die from from infection, or if you get a vaccine or, a, or an antiviral that's effective at preventing infection that people could take. That's the only way to get there to get to enough. Uh, immunity within the population to minimize infection. But it is, you know, it, it is a balance. The balance is that people are tired of living this way, uh, living with the severe social distancing restrictions. Um, and so I would anticipate that there's going to be some kind of, there would have to be some kind of reopening because people aren't gonna, going to uh, abide by this forever. And, and it's, it's not just the, the ability to tolerate it. In some cases, you've got people who are not eligible for the full public benefits and in extreme financial distress as well. And so uh, you've got that hand in hand with just human nature that after two months of this, people are, are starting to feel they're hitting their limit. Right, exactly. And so it's it's not it's not just economic reality, but it's also people who who just you know just don't want to live life this way, and it's and and it's inhibiting their hopes and dreams. And and I think we would all make a trade off. We all make trade offs every day with taking risks by um, driving on the freeway or other things that we that we choose to do. Uh, we have Brian messaged on the AirTalk Facebook page. What's known about immunity of people who've recovered from COVID-19? And I'll just supplement Brian's question, because uh, this is an important issue raised by that, um, that mutation study out of Los Alamos. Right. And what I would say is I don't know and I wish I knew more about that. You know, we would hope that if you got infected, that you would then be immune. We know with other coronaviruses, the less severe routine coronaviruses, that when you get infected with those, that you are immune for maybe a year or two. And so you're not immune for the rest of your life with um, coronavirus infections in general. Um, and then if you do get mutations, then, you know, there's, there's a whole other factor um, that you need to um, consider. So that's being followed. Um, we're hopeful that you will have long-lasting immunity after infection, but we don't know that yet. And that's why we really desperately need a vaccine um, that we hope would, would provide more long-lasting immunity. And just clarify about the antibody testing. There are two types, right? One that gives you what the sh- uh, short-term antibody reaction is, and then there's the other, the the longer-term antibodies? Right. So there's two types of antibodies that are measured. The IgM is produced early after infection, so that can be positive as early as day three or five of the illness, and so may correlate with acute infection. But it's also a less reliable test in general, and that IgM um, antibody test is prone to um, being wrong um, uh, maybe 20% of the time routinely. The other um, uh, antibody is the IgG antibody. That tends to correlate more with longer-term immunity, and that's a more reliable test. It's easier to measure and more a more reliable test. 
All right, we're talking with Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital, where he's professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases. Linda in Palm Desert asks, is it safe to take painkillers like ibuprofen or acetaminophen? Will they weaken my immune system? Yeah, there was um, some theoretical concerns with taking anti-inflammatories, and some countries like uh, France actually recommended against that. And I feel that that was premature. I have not seen any scientific evidence that shows that these anti-inflammatories actually increase your risk of either getting infection or having more severe infection if you are infected. So I would, I, I'm recommending people to use what makes them feel comfortable in terms of um, aspirin or Tylenol or, or other anti-inflammatories. Dr. Blumberg, we're almost out of time, but just in about 30 seconds, what are you seeing just directly with your patients at UC Davis? Yeah, what what we're seeing is we're seeing a steady um, flow of patients, and we are concerned about opening up, but we feel that that's something that's going to have to happen. And we're just hopeful that with increased mobility, um, that we're not going to get a, a, a very large wave of uh, new infections that are going to be occurring in the next few weeks. Dr. Blumberg, we thank you so much. Uh, you provide so much important information. We wish you well in your work and everyone in the UC Davis medical community. And uh, we look forward to talking with you next time, sir. Thank you. Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases and Professor of Medicine. Thank you so much for this unprecedented level of support for KPCC. Um, This is extraordinary. Thank you so much. Uh, We have already seen $30,000 come into AirTalk just at this point. I would would expect if we can keep this pace, we'll be up close to $60,000 by the top of the hour, which every dollar is matched. With me now, KPCC education reporter Kyle Stokes. Uh, Kyle, we heard yesterday from L.A. Unified School District Superintendent Austin Butner that school will start for the upcoming regular school year, August 18th, typical date. We just don't know whether that's going to be on campus or through distance learning. So share with us what you've learned about what LAUSD is factoring in here at the reopening. Yeah, so the school year, as you said, is supposed to begin on a typical date of August 18th. Um, and, and we're still not sure that the district says they have made no decisions about whether they're going to be in classrooms, whether they're going to have most of the learning happen online or some mixture of both. Now, when schools do reopen, it's probably going to involve some mixture of both. Um, But I think the context for the statement that we are going to begin the fall semester on August 18th is that the governor said uh, last week, sort of floated this idea that we discussed on this show, Larry, that that uh, schools might open early on, you know, potentially as early as mid-July because the governor and many educators are very concerned about students falling very far behind. Um, And what the superintendent said yesterday, LAUSD Superintendent Austin Butner, 
was that he wasn't trying to rebuke the governor or anything. He wasn't trying to get crossways with him by saying, we're starting the fall semester on August 18th. We don't know whether it's going to be in person or online. Um, but the, the fact is, is that I think that Butner is not convinced that the public health conditions are going to allow it. We don't know is what he yeah. keeps saying. They're looking at the same metrics the governor is. Coronavirus testing, contact tracing, hospitalization trends, personal protective gear, all of the same things that the governor is thinking about for broader reopening concerns. Well, and and the governor, as it turned out, hadn't consulted apparently with anyone in education before he made that ambitious statement about starting essentially the fall term in the middle of the summer. But there's there's so much that needs to be done from uh, what you do with older staff members and faculty members or those who have un- underlying health conditions. Um, you could be looking at thousands of people in a district the size of L.A. Unified who fall under those kinds of compromised you know, classifications and and you arguably would need even more teachers because if you're going to have smaller class sizes to enable physical distancing, it would seem, Kyle, that again, for on-premises teaching, you'd have to have even more teachers. Right. And let's just let's back up even bigger picture than that and pull back to, to even a higher elevation and look at this sort of epidemiological issue. Um, the, you know, you can't really reopen the economy without thinking about what happens to schools because every parent has, you know, a child care challenge. Uh, you know, my colleague Mariana Dale has reported that two thirds of the child care centers in California are closed right now. Um, and so, you know, even just considering that, um, you know, how you reopen the economy without thinking about what are what are we going to do about schools? So it really adds some broader relevance to questions like what you're talking about. How do we protect teachers and ensure that they're going to be able to be in classrooms safely? How do you uh, deal with, with you know, students being in, in classrooms? I mean, there are obviously ideas for staggered schedules. The governor has talked about staggering schedules, but like, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Do you alternate uh, students between days so that you have, you know, a student go to a classroom one day and learn online the next? Do you do, I mean, there are AM, PM shifts, sort of like they do with with morning and or afternoon kindergarten right now, but then do you have to clean the building in between? Uh, you know, how do you, you know, where are you going to sit kids at lunch and recess? There are all kinds of considerations and we are just nowhere closer to answers. There are a lot of task forces looking at it, but there are no clear answers yet. And speaking of parents and the lack of childcare that you were mentioning, Kyle, You've also got parents who are oh so ready for their kids to go back to school because if you got parents who are fortunate enough to still have their jobs and are working from home or or they are in the essential workforce and you know leaving the house cuz they have to drive the bus or they're have to work at the medical center or you know whatever their law enforcement whatever the job is Um, they want their kids back in school as soon as it's possibly safe to do so because this has been a huge challenge for them even right now. I cannot tell you how many tweets and emails I've gotten that have been, you know, sort of straddling both sides of this issue. Uh, One of them that I got last night was, Dear Austin Butner, please, please, please reopen the schools. What this actually, this is the tweet. It said, if you don't send the kids back to an actual classroom on August 18th, I'm going to kill myself. Sincerely, every mom in L.A. Uh, So I'm sure a little bit of hyperbole there. 
On the other we hand, hope. you know, <laughs> right. So very stressful time for for families dealing with stu- with kids at home. On the other hand, I think you, we're also talking about students who are at home in stressful home situations. I mean, those are probably benign circumstances where you know everybody's just getting on everybody's nerves. But there are students who are at home in really toxic home environments where they are potentially unsafe, where they're housing insecure, uh, maybe you know homeless. You know, so there's a whole range of needs to consider here, uh, because if if a student is in an, a housing insecure environment, if they're being forced to basically take care of siblings, if they're in an, a home that has poor internet access, all of those things are going to make it very difficult for any kind of distance learning. No matter how much infrastructure is in place, a laptop, uh, an internet hotspot, uh, the right kinds of instruction coming from teachers, you know, even nominal instruction from teachers, it, it isn't going to make a difference if that student can't engage with it because there's too much going on in their life. KPCC education reporter Kyle Stokes is joining us. And um, I, I'm also interested in hearing from uh, teachers if, if you have a break in your day uh, right now doing distance learning with your students that you could join and share your thoughts. Um, how reasonable is it that you think your school where you teach typically could be up and running and providing a safe environment by mid-August? 866-888-572, I'm sorry, 893-KPCC, my apologies, getting my phone numbers mixed up, 866 866- uh, 893-5722. For those of you that teach, what do you see as necessary to get the campus where you typically work up and running? I was talking with my wife about this, who typically is on a Glendale Unified campus, and she's just describing all the stuff they'd have to do to be ready to go. And, you know, if, they, if they're going to do it, I'm sure it's, you know, extremely skilled staff and great teamwork. They'll figure out a way to do it. But uh, it's... It's a big deal. 866-893-5722. Kyle, have we gotten any update for how LA Unified is going to pay for all these extra costs? No, I, I mean, I think that that's the big, that is a huge question. Um, one of the things that the, the district is talking about doing uh, you know, sort of as a different response to the pro- the problem the governor identified and we talked about earlier, which is the idea that students are just stuck at home and academically falling behind because they're unable to access distance learning programs uh, in a meaningful way. One of the ways that the district sort of proposes an alternative solution to opening up early is expanding its summer school programs. And that will involve creating essentially two brand new summer school programs in addition to, you know, traditional summer school, which is devoted to the students who are furthest behind for high schoolers who need to make up necessary credits and so forth. Um, The district on top of that is going to provide enrichment opportunities. They're going to create um, basically uh, two hours a day of core instruction, of of math and reading instruction. Um, And all of that is stuff that wasn't in the budget initially. It's going to take the district about $50 million over its, its, you know, already pretty small summer school budget um, and overall, the district's estimate is that they are going to be about $200 million behind. The district depends on the state for revenues. The state doesn't have money to give right now. Um, and, and, you know, so I think a lot of eyes are turning to the federal government saying, is there a way that we can, is there a way that, that another stimulus could come and benefit local school districts? 
uh, or, you know, and state governments generally who are going to be, you know, sort of left holding the bill for all of this, this stuff, or at least LAUSD is concerned that they're going to be left holding the bill. And they're hoping that other government entities are going to step in, but they're just, it's still a big question mark, yeah, this financial piece. Well, and, you know, the state of California is borrowing money from the federal government to be able to continue the unemployment benefits it's offering. So the state doesn't have money. Um, the county is looking at a huge hole blown in its budget. Um, th- you know, there's there's no level of government that isn't being hammered. Yeah. And, and I, we should just say that there is some discussion, I mean, from, you know, school districts and people who are sort of sympathetic to the plight, that there may be a way that the, the state could hold school districts harmless, maybe even preserve a cost of living adjustment increase that had been scheduled to go into next year's budget. So it might be possible that that at least school districts are going to have to bear the brunt of this. But on the other hand, I think we got a real reality check or what I think uh, House Assembly chair, uh, Budget Chair Phil Ting would call a reality check last week where he was like, come on, guys, we're facing potentially 80, 90 billion dollars in shortfall in Sacramento. There is no way that we are going to be able to, to talk about holding harmless. We're talking about cuts. I, I mean, but all of this is still a little bit up in the air. All of the revenue estimates are thrown off because of the tax filing schedules. And, and, and all of this leaves school districts wondering, what are we supposed to do during this time? And, and I think LAUSD's response has been, we, we, we have to worry about how to pay for it later. We're in the middle of a crisis. We have to try and find a way to preserve the mission. Kyle, thank you so much. I really appreciate your sharing all this information from Uh, Your reporting on education and LA Unified means a great deal to us. Uh, And, uh, of course, we'll continue um, pairing up in just a moment here to talk about. (laughs) Speaking of financial distress, uh, yeah, um, all we can do is laugh to keep from crying. All right, Kyle Stokes with us on Air Talk on KPCC, another hour to come. I'm I'm simply astonished by the generosity of AirTalk listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I'm, I'm getting a little emotional, I have to admit. Um, this is just beautiful to see because I know so many people are hurting right now. Thank you so much for your support on this one-day member drive. Um, we're going to take you to Laguna Beach, where Erica Ritchie, Orange County Register reporter who specializes in covering uh, the Orange Coast, South County, joins us. Erica, thanks very much. How's Laguna Beach looking this morning under this limited reopening? Yeah, it's looking great. Um, uh, I was at the at Main Beach at 6 a.m., And there were probably a good handful of people getting ready to go, had their coffee in hand, had their dogs on the leash, surfboards, boogie boards, um, ran onto the beach. And then basically the beach started filling up as time went on, 7, 8, 9 o'clock. And so now, of course, at 10 a.m., the beaches were closed again and the water was closed and people were just having an awesome time. The weather's beautiful and, and it's just kind of like a regular beach day. Um, wow. 
the beach. So let's talk about the terms of the agreement that Laguna was able to reach with um, with uh, the governor on this. So we have two Orange County beaches that reached a deal. I know the county uh, board of supervisors are meeting today. They hope to have their plan approved by the governor. So what are the terms of reopening? So as, as far as Laguna Beach goes, um, so the beaches were, you know, where the county's first beach is to be closed um, on March the 23rd, and they reopen. And in the, in the first, um, they have a four-phase plan. And um, the first part of the plan is that they are open now during the weekdays from 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then the second phase of the plan are limited beach hours on the weekdays and weekends. Phase three of the plan are regular hours on the weekdays and weekends. And then on the fourth um, fourth phase of the plan are basically everything is back open again. So you can do passive and active use in the fourth phase. But the first three phases are only for active use. So lifeguards were, um, were basically at every one of the entrances at the beaches in Laguna Beach. Uh, lifeguards inform people, hey, you need to keep moving. Don't stop. You know, you can't sit down. Yeah, you basically need to need to be active. All right, and the other beaches, San Clemente, uh, also reaching a deal with the governor's office. Erica Ritchie, the Orange County Register, we'll get back to her in a moment. But right now, Orange County Supervisor Donald Wagner, who represents uh, Anaheim Hills, Irvine, City of Orange, Tustin, and unincorporated Canyon areas, former mayor of Irvine, Supervisor Wagner. Thank you for being with us. I know you got a big meeting today of the soup to to come up with this plan. Where do things stand on reopening the county beaches? Uh, hi, uh, Larry. Yeah, I just got pulled off the dais and I've got to get back to it. So I had just a moment. Okay. Um, we, we have just begun the discussion of the beaches. Several of the local cities have submitted plans to the governor. I understand that he has approved most of them, though not all yet. The county has uh, no plan submitted or, or even prepared as of yet. Um, in part because we think we have opened the beaches safely already and recognize that um, the folks aren't coming to the beaches if they don't feel safe overwhelmingly, they felt safe. Um, The governor's plan requires active use of the beaches, which is all well and good, except there are people who are entitled to use the beach that maybe can't keep moving, that might like to sit down with a, you know, say a young family like my daughter and my granddaughter that's unable to even crawl yet at her age. And so so the governor's idea for an active plan is a half step. I think we need to take the full step. So does that mean you, you wouldn't be willing to uh, reach a deal on active use of the county beaches if that's all he allows at this point? Well, it depends on the scope of the rules that are being proposed. I would like to see, and I do believe the governor would approve, even more aggressive use of the beaches um, than than just the active use. But we'll see what the pleasure is of the board. All right. Um, and you don't have a sense at this point so far this morning what whether you're going to be able to reach a deal on that among your colleagues? I, I don't know, frankly, what my colleagues and I are going to do. We haven't seen, I haven't seen an actual proposal presented by staff yet. All right. And uh, where's your health department for the county um, weighed in on this? What, what's, what's the view of, of the staffers there? The, the view of the um, uh, health, chief health officer is that the beaches are safe to be used, which is why when uh, last time, uh, maybe two weeks ago and even last week, 
one of my colleagues put forward a close the beaches resolution, it went nowhere because our um, uh, healthcare professionals are saying that actually closing the beaches is the wrong direction, opening them is the right direction. All right. I want to thank you, Don Wagner, Orange County Supervisor. We appreciate particularly you coming off the dais as you were speaking to your colleagues. means a lot you take these minutes. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Larry. Bye. I appreciate it. Donald Wagner, Orange County Supervisor, mid-meeting coming out to, uh, to talk with uh, us and with you about what the deal is in Orange County. And also with us, the mayor of Laguna Beach. We were just getting the report from Erica Ritchie of the Orange County Register, who's there and said, looks like people are having a great time uh, recreating the beach opening from 6 to 10 this morning. Mayor Whalen, thank you for joining us. Uh, have you been out to the beach this morning? morning? I certainly have. I've spent a couple hours down there early, just uh, taking a look at how it was all going. Yeah. How did things look in your view? You know, terrific. It couldn't have been a better, more successful opening uh, and closing now that it's past 10 o'clock. Talked to our Marine Safety Chief and uh, people were down there social distancing, a lot of smiles on people's faces. And then he said, you know, within uh, 10, 15 minutes after 10 o'clock, everybody was off the beach. Wow. We were just talking with Don Wagner. You may have heard the the last of our conversation, but um, he was saying that, you know, he's very resistant of reopening the county beaches under the limitation of active use only, not allowing people to lay out on the sand. What's your view of that? Well, my, our thought, as you know, from our plan, we're active use only, San Clemente's active use only. Uh, the state beaches, we understand, are reopening uh, Crystal Cove and uh, down in San Clemente for active use only. So I, I think that's a good first step in my view. And, uh, you know, then we'll, we'll move on to uh, future phases. But for us, the, uh, the active use uh, really is the first couple of phases in our plan. So I, had, I hadn't heard the Crystal Cove and the state beaches are going to be reopening for active use. Is, do we have any sort of a, a date when that's expected to happen? I think it's going to be, you know, tomorrow, um, if not later today. But um, there, uh, we got a call this morning, our Marine Safety did, from Crystal Cove saying they were looking at reopening, I guess, probably tomorrow on an active use basis. Parking lots still closed, but beach open for active use. Okay. And and the cottages presumably are not, they're not ready to reopen either. So No, I, w- no, I wouldn't. Yeah. So we're talking just people to go there uh, for, for active use. Have you been consulting on this with your other um, mayors of, of beach communities like Laguna Beach to, to sort of come up with, with similar proposals? Or have you worked completely independently just with your city staff on this? We've been pretty independent on this. Um, uh, you know, we, we had a plan that was approved by our city council to reopen to this limited reopening two days before the governor, you know, shut down the beaches in Orange County. So we already had something that was uh, we'd been working on and was ready to go. And we submitted that Friday to the governor's office. And uh, 
worked with them over the weekend. They were very responsive and got us approval on Monday. So since we were that far down the road, we just we just moved ahead with what we already had. Love to hear from listeners. Uh, maybe you're someone who went out to Laguna Beach or to San Clemente Beach this morning. Share with us what your experience was of uh, getting in the water, using it as an active recreation uh, center. 866-893-KPECC. 866-893-5722. A little bit later this hour, we'll talk with the mayors of Long Beach and the mayor of Malibu and get their input on what they're seeing in their communities as well. We're talking with the mayor of Laguna Beach, Bob Whalen. Uh, did any of your um, personnel working the beach have to get people to move along or to tell them to spread out at all, or was everybody completely compliant, Mayor Whalen? Uh, everybody was really compliant. Uh, people were spaced out. There were, I did see our Marine safety a couple times, ask people to, you know, move along who had sort of congregated in, you know, small groups still distancing, but they said, you know, we really want you to keep on moving along the beach and everybody was fine with that. So it, uh, it was, like I said, I just couldn't have been more smooth or, uh, gone better. All right, 866-893-KPECC. And I want to extend our input from listeners to ask you about gradual reopening of businesses as well. We know from what Mayor, uh, from what Governor Newsom said yesterday at his noon news conference that starting Friday, there are more sectors of businesses that will be reopening beyond what had been classified as essential. So my question for you is, what is it going to take for you to uh, go out and to patronize businesses that start reopening? What will make you feel safe in doing that? 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Mayor Whalen, what's your sense of uh, what, if any, effect that the protests at Huntington Beach and elsewhere had uh, on the governor? Well, you know, I think he, he um, I'm not sure in terms of uh, approving our reopening plan. I, I don't know what effect they had. I, I didn't have any sense of that, really. But, um, you know, I think, as he said yesterday in his news conference, uh, you know, he was enthousi- enthusiastically embracing our plan and San Clemente's plan. He liked the active use. He liked sort of the phased in aspect of it. So, um, yeah, I don't really I have no sense that it impacted him one way or another. I think he just thought we had a good plan. Mayor Whalen, thank you so much. Congratulations on the partial reopening of Laguna Beach from 6 to 10 in the morning for active uses only. Same uh, agreement reached with San Clemente uh, Beach to the south as well. Mayor Bob Whalen of Laguna Beach. The mayors of Malibu and Long Beach will be coming up a little bit later and we'll be taking your calls here on Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. Wow, thank you so much for your financial support on this one day Giving Tuesday where we join with other nonprofits. We are all from arts organizations and other charitable groups, all of us just feeling um, just the economic hit of COVID-19 as there's a good chance you are in your life. And we are with you. We are all in this together 
and we thank those of you that are able to help. Uh, it means just so much to us. Uh, joining me now is the mayor of Long Beach, Robert Garcia. Of course, Long Beach in Los Angeles County is the second largest city in Los Angeles County. Beaches there are closed. I was just uh, there at the weekend and saw uh, everybody observing the closure of the beach there. Mayor Garcia, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And I am also a member of KPCC, so people should absolutely continue to support. Thank you so much, Mayor Garcia. That that means a lot. Um, so you're looking undoubtedly to the south, what's happening there in Orange County. And a couple uh, weekends ago, beaches over, overrun there in some places. And now there's the uh, gradual reopening of some of the beaches for active use. What are your thoughts about Long Beach um, gradually reopening? What would you want to see for you to feel comfortable? comfortable with that? Well, I think first, um, I think Long Beach and most of LA County did the right thing by not reopening our beaches uh, too early. And I think that was pretty clear by, you know, some of what happened um, uh, down in Orange County and the governor, of course, weighing in. And so we were, uh, you know, we were glad that we moved forward in the direction that we did. And so we are taking a very cautious approach um, L.A. County still is a, a large part of our hospitalization statewide. Um, fortunately, though, and I think the governor alluded to this um, yesterday, um, us here locally in Long Beach, especially, our hospitalization rate is also is really flattening out. Um, it could be that we could even start seeing some decreases if you look at the data over the last week or so. And so it's too early to make any final determinations, but the, the data is looking positive. So for us, that's reassurance that we're doing the right thing, that Safer at Home is working, um, but we are in no rush. I think it's better to be cautious, and uh, and we're definitely appreciative of the governor's leadership on a phased-in approach. This can't be a reopening overnight. We've got to phase this in, and in between those phases, there needs to be check-ins and opportunities to look at the data and to see if hospitalizations are going up or remaining flat. With the opening of, of Long Beach uh, to beachgoers, is how, how much of that is a municipal decision? How much of that is a county decision? Uh, it's actually all a municipal decision, um, unless the state were to come in and make a statewide uh, health order or decision. So Long Beach is actually one of three cities in the state that has its own health department separate of its of county partnership. So uh, locally, it's us in Pasadena um, are, the, are the two cities that don't operate within the LA County Health Order. And so, um, but we try to move together. And so we've been in partnership with LA County uh, and Pasadena, and we're trying to have a regional approach to reopening. Um, but the decision as far as reopening uh, Long Beach uh, rests with Long Beach. And the state, of course, weighs in. Okay. Um, I uh, was at Alamitos Beach just looking out at the, the beach uh, over the weekend, and um, that's a beach that doesn't get overrun generally because there's not a lot of parking uh, to access that beach. Is, is that one that you might consider because of the ability to social distance uh, reopening that beach even for passive use? So we, we are we are having very active discussions about um, our kind of reopening of our beachfront. It's such an important part of Long Beach, and I mean I'm someone that uses that uh, that running path um, very regularly. It, it, it's one of the best parts of our city. Oh, it's a great great path and separates bicycles from walkers and runners. 
Absolutely. And, and so um, we want to get there as soon as possible. And so right now there's a lot of uh, a lot of number crunching happening. I, I, I know that we've had over the yesterday and over the next few days, Long Beach and the county uh, will be making some um, kind of announcements, some some timelines. We'll be putting out guidance over what these next couple of weeks are going to look like. So I really think that if you are an L.A. County uh, resident, if you live in the region and, and you have questions about what's happening next, I, I would say stay tuned because um, there's a lot of information about what is next that people are going to be hearing about over the course of these next couple of days. Okay. Well, that's that's good. Thank you for giving us a little preview. Uh, we'll look forward to that. And of course, that's going to make the Orange County beaches feel better if, uh, if Los Angeles County beaches start a limited reopening that takes a bit of the pressure off them. Uh, Mayor Garcia, thank you very much. We really appreciate your being with us today on Air Talk. Absolutely. Anytime. Robert Garcia is the mayor of Long Beach and well to the north of Long Beach, the city of Malibu. Mayor Karen Ferrer joins us. Mayor Ferrer, thank you so much for taking time. Um, share with us what you would hope to see for the reopening of your beaches. Well, you know, Larry, even in normal times, uh, our city is greatly impacted in the summer with beach traffic uh, Pacific Coast Highway being extremely uh, traffic overrun and challenged. Um, so we will follow the county orders. It's what we've done since the beginning. Um, and uh, if any of your listeners don't know, the city of Malibu does not have jurisdiction either regulating or operating any of the beaches here in Malibu. That's all under the county of Los Angeles or the state. Okay. But I would assume your city has some degree of input, doesn't it? Orders. What's that? Our role is in supporting the county and state orders. Okay. I'm sorry, we're getting some beeping coming through on Mayor uh, Ferrer's line. We're talking with Karen Ferrer of the city of Malibu. Mayor Fair, I want to talk a little bit about the businesses in your community as well, because Malibu is a destination for people from throughout Southern California, not to mention international tourists. And um, what are you hopeful for in the reopening of, of some of your destination businesses there? Well, with the phased reopening that the governor has described, uh, we will comply uh, our businesses and our recreation areas. And just like everywhere, our businesses have been very hard hit, uh, and many of them depend on summer to make the most of of, uh, their business opportunities. So, you know, uh, with restaurants uh, looking like they're in phase four, and um, it looks like we will have partial capacity uh, of of everything. it's it's a tough time for all of us. Well, yeah, and if if your beaches are not uh, fully open for the summer, uh, has has your city done economic projections on what that would mean financially for the city? For the city, um, our primary source of revenue is property tax. Uh, many of our surrounding cities uh, financially are being impacted much more than we are because they're much more dependent on sales tax and transient occupancy or bed tax revenue. 
Yeah, and and that surprised me. I would have thought that there's a lot of sales tax reliance in Malibu given tourism, but uh, interesting that it is property taxes uh, that that is by far uh, the larger part of that. Mayor Ferrer, thank you. Uh, we appreciate your your being with us uh, and talking about the challenges that uh, Malibu uh, is facing. Um, one of the things, obviously, is you know you're not seeing as much traffic on Pacific Coast Highway. That I suppose is some small um, benefit for residents there. Yes, uh, the highway's been much easier, although not many of us are going to many places. Uh, one thing that's been a challenge, though, since the highway is unusually uh, clear, is we've had road racing going on. You've had a problem with people that through the canyons or on PCH? Both. Okay. And so have you been, uh, have you been getting uh, the Sheriff's Department working on enforcing there? Well, we've got L.A. County Sheriff uh, and in some sections, California Highway Patrol. And yeah, they've been patrolling in full force. All right. Mayor Ferrer, thank you so much. The mayor of Malibu and that street racing thing is something that so many Southern California communities have been dealing with, uh, with the absence of traffic. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPCC, also uh, on the KPCC app as well. You can tell your smart speaker to play KPCC. With us from the Orange County Register, reporter Erica Ritchie, who began the hour with with us reporting from Laguna Beach. Erica, thank you for uh, rejoining us. Uh, have Are you still there in Laguna? Uh, yes, I am. All right. So we heard from uh, the mayor uh, earlier that folks, um, when 10 o'clock hit, just packed up and went home. Is that what you saw too? Uh, yeah, I, w- I would say, you know, they, um, they, they, the lifeguards started uh, letting folks know before 10 a.m. that it was time to, to start moving off. And they also stopped letting people on about 15 till 10. And people just um, very happily, you know, I think everybody was just so happy to be out and actually on the sand and in the water that, you know, they didn't want to jinx it is my perspective. And, you know, we're happy to leave um, when they were told. All right. And and so share with us uh, a little bit what, um, you know, some of other cities are doing with business reopening in, in South Orange County. Yeah. So, um, well, as far as business, you know, one, one thing I actually just would add real quick to yeah. the beach um, perspective is just, you know, so folks are clear. So the, the beaches in Laguna that we're talking about are the city beaches. The county beaches are another thing, and that's part of Laguna Beach, too. Those are some of Laguna's south um, South Laguna beaches, and those beaches are not open. So, um, you know, the, these, um, the, 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 new re- the, the open beaches are just city beaches. Those are five and a half miles of coastline, but that doesn't in- include the complete city. Um, and I think the county is still working on a plan, or I guess you know, coming up with a plan for that. Um, as far as businesses reopening, what I'm hearing is um, there's there are some restaurants that have started 
kind of, you know, letting people dine in like uh, nomads in San Clemente. Yeah. I'm sure you, you're aware of yeah. what happened with them. We talked about that yesterday. Can you just hold that thought, Erica? We'll, we'll come back to you. Thank you so much. That's Erica Ritchie, reporter with the Orange County Register, uh, sharing with us what's going on in her territory. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle, thanking you so much for the financial support thus point during Air Talk. It has been a record-setting uh, hour and uh, 40 minutes to this point. We, on this Giving Tuesday, are joining with other nonprofits to raise $500,000, by far the most we have ever raised in a day of on-air fundraising at KPCC. And every dollar that's contributed today will be matched dollar for dollar by our trustee, Gordon Crawford, and his wife, Donna. In other words, KPCC has the potential, if we can maximize this today, of raising $1 million in a single day. Our revenue has just fallen off a cliff. Uh, We are facing very bleak financial circumstances if we cannot backfill the lost revenue, as so many of our listeners are going through very, very tough economic times. And we are with you in spirit and know what a difficult time this is. But if you're someone who is still employed and your income is still available to you, would you please step up and take the place of others who can no longer afford to give? And your contribution will be doubled. It's like you're not only giving for yourself, but you're giving for that other listener and doubling your contribution. 866-888-5722. KPCC.org. KPCC education reporter Kyle Stokes is with me. Yes, and we have been with you in spirit and in fact. We have been with you through this pandemic. We have been doing in our newsroom some of the most important uh, reporting uh, of any of the reporters in this newsroom, of any of our careers. We're doing it right now. You're hearing it, and you value that coverage. We are talking to important leaders about how reopening plans are going. You're hearing that conversation on AirTalk. We're talking to housing insecure people. We're talking to people who are working on the front lines of this pandemic in hospitals and nursing homes and telling their stories. I'm reporting with a team of education reporters on what's happening to millions of children across the state and the effect that this pandemic is having on them. You keep that on the air. That is what is at risk right now. But you can minimize the risk. You can help minimize the damage the pandemic has done to our budget by calling 866-888-5722. Keep us with you. KPC kpcc.org. Text KPCC to that call-in number 866-888-5722. We're looking at having to furlough up to a third of our staff, which obviously for the third uh, of employees, that is a huge hit. And we all we see that throughout all of our lives with people close to us. But what that means for the service that you're getting, the vital COVID-19 information is we simply will not be able to cover it in the depth that we have with those staff members no longer working with us. We It's just not going to be possible. So your contribution right now, which is matched dollar for dollar, will enable us to retain 
retain more of our staff doing vital work to bring you this information. 866-888-5722. KPCC.org. Every contribution is already making a difference. We have raised $240,000 of the $500,000 that we need to raise. That means so far we're looking at $480,000. Thank you for your support. 866-888-5722. KPCC.org. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Thank you for your extraordinary financial support. If we can pick up the pace just a bit in this hour, we assure that we will raise all $500,000 by the end of today. Uh, we're talking with uh, Orange County Register reporter Erica Ritchie, who covers South Orange County's coastal communities. Erica, we were just talking about other cities, and I'm talking about San Clemente, where um, there's one of the beachside restaurant and bars that was even opening up the dining room. It didn't appear that people were consistently social distancing. Yeah, have you seen any efforts by authorities in San Clemente to... Um, try and enforce distancing at those locations that are opening? Um, yeah, as, as I understand it, in, in the case of um, Nomads, the restaurant you just mentioned that opened over the weekend, they, I mean, they did do social distancing with inside the dining room, but then outside on the deck, people were pretty um, in pretty close proximity. As I understand it, they, they were contacted by the health department, but they were not in any way um, shut down and are basically, basically ran out of, their food and drink and because of that kind of are are not open right now but they're hoping to open again on Thursday um, and so far as I understand it they've not had any kind of um, anything happen with their business license um, despite the fact that you know the governor had ordered the restaurants closed I think there was some confusion between what the board of supervisors had approved last week what the owner thought and so um, I think they're still waiting to hear what the situation will be. All right. And before I let you go, Erica, Newport Beach is suing the governor. What's that about? Uh, yeah, well, it's actually not Newport Beach. It's um, one of the councilmen there. Um, Councilman Muldoon has, a, has his own uh, suit against the, against the governor, and it's really not connected to the city, but it's just um, something that he's taken up on his own. Um, you know, just in other news, too, that might be interesting to you is um, – Apparently today, uh, Huntington Beach, Seal Beach, and Dana Point are supposed to be getting the okay from um, Governor Newsom to begin phasing open their beaches as well. I'm just learning. So, so oh, well, that's great. Breaking news. So Huntington Beach, did you say Seal Beach? Yeah, Huntington Beach, Seal Beach, and Dana Point um, appear to be um, on the way to possible reopening or uh -oh. getting getting their plans approved. Newport Beach is also still waiting, but as I last I heard from them, they have not yet gotten word. All right, so that's breaking news, courtesy of Erica Ritchie of the Orange County Register. Erica, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Okay, thank you. Erica Ritchie of the Orange County Register on Air Talk.
The NCAA Board of Governors is supporting a proposal from one of its working groups that would allow student-athletes to sign endorsement deals to earn advertising revenue and being paid for their time spent uh, as student-athletes. Now, this doesn't go quite as far as California's bill, which gives student-athletes control of their name, image, and likeness, but it's certainly a step in that direction. With us to talk about the significance ESPN staff writer and investigative reporter Dan Murphy. Dan, good morning. Uh, share with us, what what is the gap between what this working group proposed and what the California law calls for? Good morning, Larry. Thanks for having me. And yeah, there is, there is a, a decent-sized gap there, and it's basically about restrictions. What the NCAA would like to do is to allow uh, college athletes to endorse some products, but they'd also like to put in some what they call guardrails to prevent athletes from working with particular companies that schools might not want to align themselves with uh, from a brand perspective, and also to potentially place some limits and monitor what those what they get paid for those things to make sure that the payments are a fair market value and not being used just as a, a way to thinly veil uh, recruiting payments or payments for athletic play specifically. Because that was a big concern, wasn't it? That that deep-pocketed donors would essentially hire athletes to promote, you know, whatever their business had or their friends had, and it would be a fake leaf to cover, uh, just, you know, recruit, recruiting payments. That's right. That That is the concern. I think if that, if they had thought of a clever way around that, this would have been done a long time ago, but that has always been seen as the um, biggest problem to solve. And frankly, they haven't really solved it yet. Um, they've, they've put an, uh, taken another step forward in saying, we're going to do this and we have to figure out how. But the specific details of how you regulate a market like that, they could have tens of thousands of endorsement deals that have to be reviewed on a yearly basis for a, comp- for a, a nationwide organization that already has a, a lot of issues on its hands uh, is a huge problem that they have to solve before they decide to vote this into place. Dan Murphy of ESPN with us. Also joining us, USC Associate Professor of Sports Business, David Carter. He's principal of the Sports Business Group Consulting and Marketing Firm. So obviously, He's watching intently what the NCAA is looking at. David, it's good to have you with us again. We we appreciate it. Um, your thoughts about um, how far the NCAA appears to be willing to go under this legislative pressure from California and other states? Well, good morning, Larry. And, and Dan's exactly right. The NCAA hasn't solved this yet. But the way to really think about this from the NCAA standpoint is that they can no longer stem their legal losses. The, the tide is moving against them. It has been for many, many years. And so my perspective on it is that the NCAA has been hoping to lose as slowly as possible. And, and out of that comes this incrementalism uh, that we've seen. And, and you have to go back and, and wonder, in terms of what we were just talking about a moment ago, assessing fair market value, monitoring endorsement deals, is this even a core competency of the NCAA when – as Dan mentioned, they have so many other things on their plate. How are they going to do this well, and how are they going to make sure that it is uh, uh, equitable? Because what you're going to see is a, quite a few unintended consequences and a very slippery slope. So let's say, for example, uh, an athlete decides to do an endorsement deal with the NRA or Planned Parenthood. That might be deemed controversial, but is that out of bounds in terms of what an, a student athlete can endorse? And so I just don't think they've worked their way through all these eventualities, and you can't really expect them 
to have done so quite yet. Well, and and yeah, that raises the whole issue of fan boycotts or or big donors to the university saying, well, if player X is, uh, you know, is is getting paid to support this particular interest group, and I'm against that. I mean, this this the can of worms here is huge. Well, it is, and then you run into this whole problem of uh, the morality police and who's going to. Uh, be be monitoring all this, and as you were mentioning a moment ago, in comes the role of boosters and sports agents and and other sponsors that want to get a piece of this as well. So uh, we're talking with USC professor David Carter. Where do you think, as a practical matter, we're going to be in say two years down the road? Well, I think a couple of years down the road, we'll still be embroiled in litigation. Uh, I think there's going to be quite a few student athletes who are upset. There are going to be conferences uh, in major and, and, and not so large college conferences that are going to be upset about how this money is being diverted. You're going to see schools potentially have to drop or cancel some of their smaller sports programs because they may not have the money coming in that they used to, fearing that some of that money that did come in won't go to the athletic department, but might go to some of its top flight athletes. And that comes at the expense of being able to fund perhaps the women's lacrosse team or the you know, the women's diving team or what have you. And so I think litigation will be the uh, the mainstay for the next several years. Dan Murphy of, of ESPN, um, you see it similarly? Yeah, I think so. And the, the other big piece of this that the NCAA asked for last week that's really important along those lines is they basically made a plea to Congress saying that they need federal help in order to make this happen. And what they want from Congress is, one, a, a law that allows them to sort of complement the guardrails they want to put in place that will supersede uh, many state laws like the one that's already been uh, scheduled to go into place in California in a couple of years. And they're also asking for an antitrust exemption because they would Put, find themselves in a lot of civil litigation and a lot of problems about how they might cap some of these things if they decide they want to try to place restrictions on them in terms of how, how do you do that without violating the Sherman Act. Um, so they've asked for that antitrust exemption. The Congress members that I've spoken to in the past week think that that's a long shot that they would get that. Uh, but again, you know, in terms of where does this go in the next year or two, that you're talking about a Congress that has much bigger problems on its hands right now and a presidential election coming up. So I don't think so. this will be a super high priority in D.C. And the NCAA is hoping and really needs Congress to help them to to solve these problems. Yeah, because state by state laws are, are uh, I'm sure, a litigation nightmare for them. And, you know, speaking of antitrust, the only thing we typically hear about that with sports is baseball's exemption, which members of Congress routinely threaten to, to vote to take away. So the idea that they would add an antitrust exemption for college athletics, that, that would seem like a long shot, Dan. Though if, if they're going to be looking at all these different state laws, is the NCAA going to have any choice but to go as far as these laws go? Well, I think that's that's the litigation that David was talking about, is that they are going to try to fight it. And they've already sort of tipped their hand a little bit about some of the arguments they're going to make about how having different state laws and restricting, if, if California, for instance, were to have different laws than some of the other conference schools in the in the Pac-12 conference, that they, they would make the case that it's restricting interstate commerce um, and that it's therefore unconstitutional. Uh, I, I think you can talk to all kinds of legal scholars who have different opinions on on what they think about that argument. But um, if if Congress doesn't create some type of national law that uh, works well with what the NCAA wants, I do think we're headed to a road of a lot of different litigation. 
Dan Murphy, ESPN investigative reporter. Thank you so much for being with us. And David Carter, USC associate professor of sports business and the founder and principal of the Sports Business Group consulting and marketing firm. Joining us on AirTalk, and we'll, of course, keep you updated on what comes of this NCAA working group recommendation for athletes because California is really the center of where all this activity is going, not to mention all the spending that goes into major college uh, athletics right here in Southern California. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming up, it's going to be Governor Gavin Newsom's new news conference, and maybe there'll be some additional news about beaches that are coming out of that. And of course, we also remind you today is Giving Tuesday, a huge day for all of us at KPCC.